Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. I am so pleased that we are going to have Professor Marjorie Cohn on. I've read a couple of her articles, and I just finished reading Rules of Disengagement, The Politics in Honor of Military Dissent. And this is a great book, and we're really thrilled to have her. Let me tell my audience a little bit about her. Professor Marjorie Cohn is a law professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in beautiful San Diego, She's also president of the National Lawyers Guild, and she lectures throughout the world on international human rights and U.S. foreign policy. She's a consultant for CBS News and a legal analyst for Court TV. She also provides legal and political commentary on BBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, Air America, and Pacific Radio. Professor Cohn is also the author of several books, including Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law, and co-author of Cameras in the Courtroom, Television and the Pursuit of Justice. Her new book that I just told you about is called Rules of Disengagement, The Politics and Honor of Military Dissent. And her articles have appeared in numerous journals, such as Fordham Law Review, Hastings Law Review, and the Virginia Journal of International Law, as well as the National Law Journal, Christian Science Monitor, and the Chicago Tribune. And of course, I've read several of her articles in the Daily Journal. And she's also a contributing editor to Jurist, MWC News, and Guild Practitioner, and her weekly columns appear on Alternate, Counterpunch, Common Dreams, Huffington Post, Op-Ed News, Atlantic Free Press, AfterDowningStreet.Znet, and Global Research, and are archived at her website, which you can learn so much more about all her great accomplishments, at www.MarjorieCone.com. That's M-A-R-J-O-R-I-E-C-O-H-N dot com. So we're thrilled to begin talking to her. We have lots to discuss. Thank you, Marjorie, for joining us from San Diego. My pleasure, Mari. Well, Marjorie, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, your first two books. Tell us a little bit about your Cowboy Republic. Cowboy Republic was published in 2007 uh, during the Bush administration, but many of the things in the book are still very relevant today. And because of the vast lawbreaking that took place during that administration, um, I decided I wanted a, a... handy-dandy volume that people could carry around, which would explain in legal analysis, but also layperson's terms, exactly what laws the Bush administration was breaking and how. And 
when I limited it to six different ways, I have to admit I, I received some criticism. People would say, well, how can you say there were only six ways that the Bush team broke the law? And my response to that was that if I were to chronicle all of the law-breaking from the Bush administration, uh, the volume would look something like Webster's Unabridged Dictionary. Um, it would be too heavy to carry around. It would be too expensive for most people to buy. So I limited it to the six, ma- what I thought were the major examples of lawbreaking. And of course, the first, and I think the most serious, is the illegal war of aggression in Iraq, which continues as an occupation of Iraq now, even under the Obama administration. And um, and we can go into that if you want, why the war in Iraq is illegal. And by the way, so is the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, we will no, go in that, into that will. later. Yes. But- but and you want to share a couple of the other reasons, the other of the six ways? Yes, and then the torture of prisoners, which right. I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yes. Um, the illegal spying on Americans, um, the Guantanamo Gulag, in the words of Amnesty International, which uh, is a, was created as a legal black hole by the Bush administration so that no law would apply to those people and they could lock them up the rest of their lives. Right. Um, and also targeted killings and assassinations, which continue to this day as well in Pakistan with the unmanned CIA drones. Mm. Um, and, and then you've probably heard of Bush's signing statements where Congress would pass a law. The, Congre- the Constitution says that Congress has the power to pass the laws. And instead of vetoing laws that he didn't agree with, um, George W. Bush would sign them with great fanfare and then quietly attach a signing statement saying, I'm the commander-in-chief and I'm only going to follow those parts of the laws that I, that I agree with. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the six main ways um, that I chronicled uh, that described the lawbreaking by the Bush administration. Wow. Then you also wrote, a, you co-authored Cameras in the Courtroom, and that, that has been a huge issue, too, ever since... You know, back in the O.J. Simpson and people having media in courtrooms and afterward. What about that one? Why did you write that one? Well, I was working for CBS News with David Dow, longtime uh, CBS News correspondent, doing commentary about the O.J. Simpson case, of all things. And we... As we worked together on the O.J. Simpson case, we realized that this was an important issue. It was very controversial, and there really were not any comprehensive studies of it. So we decided to co-author this book, and David, who was a a journalist, and he's actually retired now, um, was in favor of cameras all the time everywhere, because, of course, he was a journalist and was arguing the First Amendment and freedom of the press. And being a longtime criminal defense attorney, I was inclined to oppose cameras in the courtroom because I thought that they would prejudice the rights of the defendant to a fair trial. So we wrote a work which we passed back and forth and struggled over every word uh, in in kind of a tug-of-war and eventually came up with a fairly objective treatment of the issue um, and and, and agreed on some conclusions. And we looked at the history of cameras in the courtroom. We we both agreed that there's absolutely no reason that cameras should not be in the Supreme Court. That's where the law of the land is made. There there are no juries or witnesses um, to be influenced or prejudiced, and uh, it really, people are really entitled to see how the law of the land is made. And of course, uh, you remember the famous quote from Justice Souter, who has recently stepped down from the court, the day a camera rolls into this courtroom will be over my dead body. (laughs) Now, uh, that's not going to happen, of course. And uh, Justice uh, Sotomayor said during her confirmation hearings that she would be open. She's had cameras in her courtrooms and would be open to it. Um, And that's the same thing that Chief Justice Roberts said during his confirmation hearing. And as soon as he uh, got on the court, uh, that changed real quickly because the the members of the Supreme Court are not interested in uh, giving up their anonymity. And and it was a very quick little anecdote. Justice Blackmun, the author of Roe v. Wade, um, was uh, was on the court, and he would take a stroll at lunchtime uh, around the courthouse. And once he strolled right past some anti-choice protesters, and uh, they never recognized him, and he liked it that way. So I don't think we're going to see cameras in the Supreme Court's 
very soon. That's why I wrote that book. Right, right. I, I, I've I, been reading more recently about cameras in, in the Supreme Court, and it would be wonderful to be able to see how this law is made, and I think it would help them to be more accountable. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's so much hoopla about the appointment, the nomination, and confirmation of a Supreme Court justice, and who's on the court, and how is it, how is it divided, and, and the court deals with very, very critical issues. And it is, of course, the highest court in the land. And, uh, and yet, uh, unless you are one of the lucky few who stands in line and sits for a few minutes in the courtroom and, and uh, don't happen to have your view blocked by one of the big posts in the Supreme Courtroom, um, you're, you're never going to see how that takes place. I have actually been in the Supreme Court during oral argument, and it's fascinating. Yes. Uh, it's fascinating to see the interaction of the justices, where they're coming from, how they treat the attorneys, um, what issues they grapple with, and uh, all Americans should be entitled to see that. Yeah, it seems to me that kind of transparency really helps a democracy. Right. Well, well let's go on to your newest book, the Rules of Disengagement, The Politics in Honor of Military Dissent. Why did you write this book? I know you co-authored this with Kathleen Gilbert. So what was that all about? Yes, Kathleen Gilbert is the co-chair of the National Lawyers Guild's Military Law Task Force, and she's one of the leading experts in the country on military administrative law. Both Kathy and I are veterans of the anti-Vietnam War movement, and we both, because we were involved in that anti-war movement, we, we realized that um, the GI movement, the resistance of GIs to that war, was really the heart and soul of the anti-war movement and in many respects was, was largely responsible for the end of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And since we are now mired in a, a, a uh, could, what could be a never-ending occupation of Iraq, notwithstanding the status of forces agreement that uh, Bush signed with, um, with the government of Iraq. We are mired in an occupation in Iraq. We are involved in an escalating um, war in Afghanistan, and, uh, and Obama uh, ran on a platform of ending the Iraq war but escalating the Afghanistan war, and he is doing that. Um, and the resistance of service members to those wars and occupations is growing. Right. And so we thought that it would be very important to drawing on the lessons of Vietnam to write this book. We do a comparison between what was happening during Vietnam and what's happening now. There are many of the same uh, themes that you find in both. And, uh, and we also wanted it to be a practical guide to help service members know what their rights are. Um, how they can become conscientious objectors, whether they even are conscientious objectors, what are the limits of dissent in the military, what if they want to get a discharge or resist being discharged, um, what if they're facing racism within the military or sexual assault or sexual harassment, what do they do? So it is both a political analysis and also a very practical um, guide with regulation sections and advice. And of course, we say throughout the book that it's very important that people contact uh, a lawyer or a, a military counselor to, to find out um, you know, what their rights are. But I think that it is very useful as well. Right. And you use actual, um, some of the information directly from the men and women who were in the war or who are in the war to find out the real story. So it isn't just legalese, you're talking about real-life stories in this book that I think are real helpful, too. Yes, we actually have one chapter on Winter Soldier, which is a takeoff on the, um, <clears throat> these are the times that try men's souls, uh, the, the, uh, summer, the summer soldier shrinks from services was the Tom Paine quote. And so taking off on that, in 1971, during the Vietnam War, um, there were many, many soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines who were um, testifying about war crimes they had committed and witnessed in Vietnam. And this is when John Kerry testified uh, in front of Congress about war crimes, saying who, who, who's going to be the last soldier to die for a mistake. So in 2008, 
um, so veterans and GIs involved in Iraq and Afghanistan did the same thing with Winter Soldier 2008, and about 200 of them testified and told incredibly moving, powerful stories, and we recount some of those stories in this book uh, and, and some atrocities that, that uh, they witnessed and participated in. And, uh, and, and we also have a chapter on the medical effects of war and the incredible epidemic of post-traumatic stress disorder that people have who have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, very similar to what happened after Vietnam, as well as an epidemic of suicides. Yes. Um, and this is one of the real tragedies. Uh, in, in addition to the senseless deaths on both sides that have occurred. And we've also seen a lot of violence by former GIs as well when they come back and they're not getting the, the mental health that, that they need. And there's been, you know, killings and all sorts of things that, and rapes, all sorts of things like this that have, that have happened as a result for these soldiers not getting the kind of help that they need when they get back. And, of course, experiencing the the raping and all of the sexual assaults and the killing that they've already seen when they were overseas. Yes, and the military is so desperate for for soldiers. Uh, They do things like um, they redeploy troops that are unfit to, to deploy, troops that have PTSD, troops that have suffered traumatic brain injuries. Um, and uh, there are other things they do as well. They have military recruiters who put a lot of pressure on young kids, lie to them, sometimes kidnap them, sometimes assault them um, to to get them to sign up. Uh, so this is another uh, casualty of these wars, these illegal wars that uh, we're seeing now. And we also document in the book some successes that people have had in resisting the wars and um, there, there are uh, people who have refused to follow orders to uh, deploy to Iraq, and I have testified as an expert witness in some of these hearings and courts martial. Um, and by stating the law that there is a duty in in U.S. law to obey lawful orders, but there's also a duty to disobey unlawful orders. And in order to deploy to an illegal war is an unlawful order. And my testimony in some cases has corroborated the reasonableness of a specific service member's belief that he or she would be participating in an illegal war and possibly being put in the position of committing war crimes, uh, that is torture, for example, um, if they deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. And we have had some success with that. But that's also explained in the first chapter called Resisting Illegal Wars. Right. What about the fact you did a comparison between Vietnam and what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. What effect does it have, the fact that we used to have a, you know, a draft? And I remember sitting in front of that television when my husband, my former husband, who was my former fiance, was waiting to see what his number was about going to Vietnam. What is the difference or is there any difference between these guys who are volunteering for warfare versus those who were drafted? Well, it is true. We used to have a draft. And in fact, before I became a lawyer, I was a legal worker in, a, in the Palo Alto Law Commune where we helped people get out of the draft um, and help them file for conscientious objection, etc. Um, but a lot of the resistance in the GI movement during Vietnam came from volunteers, not necessarily draftees. Uh, And in some ways, we talk about this in the book, they had higher expectations, which is why they signed up. And uh, then they felt betrayed by their government for many different reasons. Um, Although today we don't have a draft per se, we have something that some people call the poverty draft, where many of the military recruiters target kids in working-class communities. They target uh, kids of color, and uh, they think, the recruiters think, that these kids uh, may have fewer opportunities um, to get jobs or to receive an education, and so they promise them uh, the, you know, the, uh, that they, they will get an education, that they'll travel, that it'll be very uh, romantic, and, and, uh, and they, they, they don't talk about what it really means uh, to go to war. And so they target, and that's why some people call it the poverty draft. And it's not just people of color and poor kids, of course, who sign up, but that's who the military recruiters target in large part. Um, so in a sense, 
uh, although we don't have a, an official draft, we do have something like it today. And especially with the economy today, we're finding that more and more kids are going to be uh, attracted to something that they have, that they have some security. And I think that's a problem. I was uh, just working, I'm, I'm a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, and I was working the booth at the Orange County Fair. And I can't tell you how many young guys who were hoping to get out very soon, you know, they were stationed at Camp Pendleton, and they were hoping to get out soon and wanted to know, was there any possibility that they could get into the Orange County Sheriff's Department? And uh, they, a lot of them were going to be deployed to Afghanistan very soon before they were going to get their chance to get out. But they were looking for some kind of security like they had in the military that was safer. And I literally had at least 20 guys come up to me in, in a couple hours just asking me about that. Was there any possibility? So I think with the economy, they're also worried about where they're going to get a job that has some security. And for them, that looks like it may be romantic and sec- secure and get to go someplace and travel. And But it isn't. It really isn't what they think it is. No, this is not security when you're going into a war zone uh, and uh, and your buddies are getting killed and you could be killed and you're put in a position of killing people and uh, you know there there are uh, there are lawful wars and unlawful wars and one of the things about Vietnam is that the uh, our soldiers didn't really understand why they were there. That was not a just war. It was not a legal war. Just like the wars today are not legal wars and uh, that makes it even more difficult. So I don't, they may think they're going to get security but they don't. And then they sign a contract uh, and their time is up and they're going to be discharged but then under the stop loss program um, they're kept for repeated uh, tours of duty. Some have been sent back to Iraq or Afghanistan multiple times. Yes. And of course, that uh, doesn't just put them in jeopardy in terms of, of uh, losing their life. It also increases the risk of coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder of, uh, of becoming a suicide. Right, right. Let's talk about what is a legal war versus an illegal war. How do, how do you define that? Well, it's def- it's defined by the United Nations Charter, and the United Nations Charter is a treaty that the United States has ratified, and under the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, when the United States ratifies a treaty, that treaty becomes the supreme law of the land. So notwithstanding Bush's distaste for so-called international law, uh, and John Yu and and others who who don't like international law, including some of the radical right wingers on the Supreme Court right now, um, the the UN Charter is part of U.S. law under the Constitution of the United States, and the UN Charter says that um, no country shall invade another country except in two instances: one, if that country is acting in self-defense, or two, when the Security Council gives its approval. Neither of those two things was present either before we invaded North Vietnam or before we invaded Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, First of all, looking at the Vietnam situation, South Vietnam was not a separate state, and the North didn't invade the South militarily until after the U.S. had, uh, had entered with troops. And, of course, we've all heard of the Gulf of Tonkin uh, resolution, which Congress passed in response to a lie from the Johnson administration saying that our boats had been attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin by North Vietnamese, which which never happened. So um, that was not in self-defense, the Vietnam War, and the Security Council never approved that war. It was an illegal war. Likewise, the war in Iraq, so-called Operation Iraqi Freedom, was an illegal war, and, and I explained this in the first chapter of Cowboy Republic. So it they, not, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, um, it was not done in self-defense because Saddam Hussein had not attacked uh, any other country in 12 years since he had gone into Kuwait and then left, been, been forced out of Kuwait. Um, he, the U.S. Min- uh, Bush administration knew that his military capacity had been neutered by the Gulf War, by punishing sanctions and uh, by almost nearly bombings in the no-fly zone. The inspectors who had been there said that he did not have weapons of mass destruction. Hans Blix, who was the chief weapons inspector, said, give us more time. Uh, we don't 
think you should go in. And yet, um, almost when, almost as Bush was being sworn in for his first term, they started planning how to attack Iraq. Um, and uh, and he was asking for plans to attack Iraq. And of course, we know that Iraq never attacked us on 9/11. And try as they might uh, to make a connection between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, uh, there was no connection between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda. So it was not done in self-defense. Bush went to the Security Council to try to get a resolution um, authorizing the U.S. and and Britain, et cetera, and the so-called Coalition of the Willing to go into Iraq. The Security Council never gave them that resolution. In spite of the lies from Colin Powell uh, at, that uh, they knew were based upon uh, the torture of Al Libby, uh, with this, you know, creating this connection between Iraq and Al Qaeda, um, so it was not done in self-defense. The Security Council did not agree. Afghanistan, same thing. Uh, it was not, and and um, Obama who, as I said, opposed, opposed the Iraq war during the campaign, but said that uh, Afghanistan was the right war, and Time magazine, I think, had a cover saying the right war. Um, now, by the way, the majority of American people do not support the war in Afghanistan. Uh, but even aside from that, that is also an illegal war. The government of Afghanistan never attacked us. The Taliban never attacked us. In fact, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, one of our close allies. We didn't attack Saudi Arabia. Um, They never attacked us. And uh, so Bush said, well, we know that the Taliban is harboring Osama bin Laden. Turn him over to us or we're going to attack you. And Americans said, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, what if in 1979... After the Iranian Revolution, when the Shah of Iran, the vicious Shah of Iran, fled to the United States and was given safe haven, what if the new government of Iran had come to the U.S. government and said, you're harboring a terrorist, you're harboring a torturer, you're harboring the Shah, turn him over to us or we're going to invade you? Would that have been legal? Of course not. It's the same thing. The Security Council never gave its blessing to the invasion of Afghanistan. The two resolutions that were passed after 9-11... 1368 and 1373, talked about the right to self-defense in the preamble, but in the action part of the resolution, they talked about many other things and sharing intelligence and and, uh, anti-terrorism conventions and bringing people to justice, but nowhere did those resolutions authorize the United States or any other country to invade Afghanistan. And in fact, at the end of both of those resolutions, it says the Security Council shall remain seized of the matter. And that means that the Security Council, and only the Security Council under the UN Charter, has the authority to authorize the use of force. So for all of those reasons, all three of those wars were and are illegal. And so why did, why did they take place? I mean, was it, it was all political? It was economic? What was it? Well, that's 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 a long discussion. Um, Vietnam, uh, we we wanted a counterweight to uh, China. Um, it was you know there was the domino theory that if Vietnam fell to the communists, that all the other countries would fall to the communists. It was during the Cold War, uh, and of course that all proved to be false. Um, during the Iraq War, um, has to do with, and and I think still has to do with the U.S wanting a, a permanent military presence in Iraq, in the Gulf, to, uh, to have access to the oil there, because it's one of the richest oil-producing uh, countries in the world, and also to exploit that resource for profit. If Saddam Hussein had been willing to allow U.S. corporations, to, to, to allow uh, the U.S. to have military bases in Iraq and U.S. corporations to, uh, to buy the oil at reduced prices and, and uh, invest in Iraq, he would still be in power. We would not have gone through what we went through. But he resisted and stood up. And I am no fan of Saddam Hussein's. He was, he was a tyrant. He was a terrorist. He was right. a torturer. But he was not a threat to the United States or to any other country, uh, and, and that was illegal. So um, I, when you see that the Bush administration built huge military bases in Iraq, some of them are like small cities um, with swimming pools and hospitals, and, and the largest U.S. embassy in the world in Baghdad, I just don't see us totally pulling out all American soldiers from that country and closing those bases. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, in terms of Afghanistan, um, 
I think that also had a lot to do with oil um, and natural gas and pipelines because before 9-11, the Bush administration was actually facilitating negotiations between Unical, one of the biggest oil companies, and the Taliban for a pipeline to run through Afghanistan and Pakistan, and, and that's in and the Caspian Sea, of course, is another rich source of oil. And... Uh, that uh, when those those talks broke down, then they started talking about uh, attacking Afghanistan and and 9/11. Although I'm not a 9/11 conspiracy theorist, um, 9/11 fell right into their laps and gave them an excuse to um, not just attack Afghanistan and Pakistan and uh, and and trump up this this connection with Iraq. Um, but also to engage in incredible repression in this country, in, in the torture of prisoners all over the world, and repression and uh, cutting back on constitutional rights in this country to suppress dissent against these policies. Yes, using fear tactics to um, suppress a lot of the privacy rights in favor of security or alleged security. That, that's basically what happened. We're speaking with Professor Marjorie Cohn, who is a law professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She is the president of the National Lawyers Guild. She is a commentator for many different TV shows. She is also the author of Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law, and co-author of Cameras in the Courtroom, Television in the Pursuit of Justice. And, of course, her new book that we're going to be talking more about in a few minutes is called Rules of Disengagement, the Politics and Honor of Military Dissent. So, Marjorie, you know, what is a conscientious objector? How do you define that in these days? A conscientious objector is someone who is opposed to all war, not just the war in Iraq because it's illegal or the war in Afghanistan because it's illegal, although there are uh, many, many uh, service members who oppose those particular wars, but oppose all wars, and that can be based upon religious belief or other spiritual belief. Um, and there are certain rules and requirements to become a conscientious objector. Um, you have a, quite an application to fill out and uh, and witnesses and to, to uh, be interviewed by the chaplain. And uh, many of these requirements are uh, laid out in, in Chapter 2 of our book, Conscientious Objectors, Modern Conscientious Objectors. And there are many people who don't know their conscientious objectors until they actually um, get into the military. For example, Agustin Aguayo um, checked the box when he, when he first applied to, be, to join the military. He checked the box that said, I'm not a conscientious objector. He didn't think he was. And once he was in and he was in basic training and he had to shoot at silhouettes of humans, uh, he just he froze. He just couldn't do it. And he realized that he, he just... Uh, he, he, was a conscientious objector. Now that doesn't mean they can't defend themselves if they're attacked, and and uh, or if their families attacked or babies, right? right? Yeah, right. Um, Aiden Delgado, who was actually declared a conscientious objector, uh, wrote a very interesting book, and he talked about how after he uh, declared himself to be a conscientious objector, he was um, he he was walking around unarmed, and he was actually at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, mm. and uh, it was being being fired upon, and he was uh, not given a flak jacket not given any protective armor, and uh, he, they actually singled him out. Some of the other uh, GIs singled him out uh, to beat him up, tried to beat him up, and one of them attacked him, and he just fought right back and took the guy down. So he said, you know, I may be a, conscious, a conscientious objector, but I can still defend myself. So um, it, there are people who don't know they're conscientious objectors, and in fact, um, the, if, to, to be declared a conscientious objector, uh, you cannot have been one when you entered. And uh, it, there may be many more people, there invariably are many more people who are conscientious objectors and don't know about it and, and don't know they qualify and they do things like go absent without leave or, or uh, just walk away. They don't know what their rights are when they really could be filing an ap application for conscientious objection. Right. You know, that kind of leads me to um, the, in your book, The Rules of Dis Disarm Disengagement, you had uh, examined the reasons why soldiers have disobeyed orders. So aside from being a conscientious objector, what are some of the other reasons that they do that? 
Well, um, as I said, many soldiers... Re- let, me, let me give you one example of, of uh, First Lieutenant Aaron Watada, who was the first commissioned officer to resist orders to go to Iraq. Um, and he was in the, in the Army, and I think he still is in the Army, actually. And before he went to Iraq, his commanding officer said, read up on Iraq so you will understand the situation there uh, because you're going to have to lead your men over there once you get there. So he started doing research, and he realized that this was an illegal war, and uh, and it was also an immoral war. And he realized that the only the, the most patriotic thing he could do um, would be to to resist orders. And he read stories about what had happened over there. Um, he read the law, and uh, he refused orders to deploy to Iraq because he said it was illegal. Uh, and I was actually slated to testify as a witness in his court-martial. The judge wouldn't allow me to testify, and eventually um, the case was dismissed on double jeopardy grounds wow. for various technical reasons. Um, but and I and I believe that he's getting out of the military. But um, he so so he he was just following orders. He was following his commanding officer's orders to read up on Iraq, and he did. And he realized that the order to deploy to Iraq would be an illegal order because it was an illegal war. Amazing. Why didn't the judge let you testify? He said it was irrelevant. <laughs> it oh. was irrelevant that the war was illegal. Now um, there have been. The, the the times my testimony has been allowed is usually in the sentencing phase, in mitigation of sentence, uh, not so much in the guilt phase. Because, for example, if if someone is charged with missing movement, that means that they didn't get on the ship when it was deploying to Iraq. Um, the the many judges have taken the position that either you get on the ship or you don't get on the ship, and your motivation is irrelevant. Uh, and uh, but we have had some success in the guilt phase, talking about uh, that it was an illegal order, order that the person, the defendant, uh, was reasonable in thinking it was an illegal order to deploy to an illegal war. Um, so although uh, there has not been much success during the, in the guilt phase, there has been some. Uh, during the mitigation or sentencing phase of the trial. Let's switch gears a little bit now and talk about uh, the looking forward versus looking back. We've heard that our new president, President Obama, says that we should look forward and not backward and refrain from prosecuting the Bush administration and the attorneys and their officials for all the different illegal things, such as the interrogation policies. What are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, I don't believe that we can go forward without resolving what happened in the past. And we are a nation of laws, and that means that when people break the laws, they must be held to account. And under the Constitution, the president has a duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, which means that President Obama has a constitutional duty to ensure that people who have broken the laws are uh, are, are uh, brought to justice. And uh, I understand for political reasons, he wants to be a uniter, not a divider. He wants to be a bipartisan president. If you read his book, um, uh, he, he certainly is a centrist. He's not a liberal. I think he was at one time, probably when he was a community organizer. But he really wants everybody to get along, uh, I think naively in some ways, uh, because it's not going to happen. And I say that because I see him just compromising in many, many ways where he doesn't have to compromise given the makeup of Congress. But um, his his attorney general, Eric Holder, uh, has said that he is going to investigate bringing some charges against some CIA interrogators who didn't follow the policy set forth in the so-called torture memos, um, which to me is even more uh, dangerous and alarming than if uh, he did nothing at all. And I believe strongly that the policymakers in the Bush administration and their lawyers, their legal mercenaries, should be held to account for war crimes and torture, which we have two, two laws, the War Crimes Act and the Torture Statute, which punish torture and cruel treatment. Um, but by saying that he is only going to prosecute people who didn't follow the reasoning in the memos, he is implicitly saying that we are sanctioning what 
they did say in those memos. And if you look at the memos that John Yu and Jay Bybee and David Addington and William Haynes and Alberto Gonzalez wrote, um, these torture memos sanction violation of the law. They in, they're not just uh, legal opinions. They actually provide a case, I, I don't think a legal case, but uh, attempt to provide a case to immunize the officials in the Bush administration from uh, prosecution under the War Crimes Act and redefine torture so narrowly that you practically have to kill someone for it to constitute prohibited torture. And our law uh, does not include that. And we have... We have the torture statute. We have the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Um, the latter is a treaty ratified by the United States and therefore part of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. And that treaty, in addition to the Geneva Conventions, another treaty we've ratified, mandate that governments, that, that uh, countries that have, are parties to those treaties because they've ratified them, bring people to justice who have committed torture and cruel treatment. And, uh, and yet Holder is saying, if you didn't follow the reasoning in these torture memos, we're going to prosecute you, uh, which is, is uh, as I said, worse than nothing. Now, some uh, memos were recently released um, in April, I believe, and uh, they provided even more graphic details about what these uh, these legal mercenaries, John U. J. Bybee, etc., um, Stephen Bradbury, were counseling uh, Cheney and Bush, etc., uh, that they could do legally. Um, one of the memos justifies 10 techniques, including banging heads into walls 30 times in a row, Ugh. prolonged nudity, repeated facial and abdominal slapping, uh, dousing with cold water as low as 41 degrees, shackling somebody in a standing position for 180 hours, depriving them of sleep for 11 days, Ugh. confining people in small dark boxes with insects for hours, and Ugh. waterboarding. Uh, which is like, uh, you know, the next thing to drowning. Um, they are just astounding. And uh, one of the worst aspects of the memos is the use of medical professionals to enable this, uh, this torture and cruel treatment. They're on hand to monitor the victims, to make sure that they come close to death, but they don't actually die. It's like um, the Nazis. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's interesting you say Nazis because some people say, well, how can you hold these lawyers accountable? You can't prosecute lawyers. They were just giving legal advice. Um, and there is precedent in our law for bringing lawyers to justice. And this was from the Nazi era. Um, these lawyers were an integral part of a criminal conspiracy to violate U.S. laws. There's one case called... And the doctors, US too. Pardon me? I said, and, and even the doctors who participated. Exactly, exactly, yes. Um, there's a case called U.S. versus Altstetter, where Nazi lawyers were convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity for advising Hitler on how to legally, and I put that in quotes, legally disappear political suspects to special detention camps. And the United States charged that since they were lawyers, not farmers or factory workers, they should have known that their technical justifications for circumventing the Hague and Geneva Conventions were illegal. And the cases of Altstetter and those of the Bush lawyers share some common aspects. Both dealt with people detained during war crimes, who, uh, during wartime, who were not uh, POWs. In both the Altstetter case and the Bush administration, it was reasonably foreseeable that the advice they gave would result in great physical or mental harm or death to many detainees. And in both, the advice was legally erroneous. And more than 100 people have died in U.S. detention since 9-11, many from torture. Um, in fact, the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel withdrew one of the worst torture memos, an admission that the advice in it was defective. So it is my position and the strong position of the National Lawyers Guild that uh, the Bush administration, and we're talking about people on the Principals Committee, um, Cheney, Rice, Rumsfeld, Powell, Ashcroft, Tennant, uh, be be prosecuted for war crimes as well as the lawyers, you, Bybee, Gonzalez, uh, Haynes, 
Bradbury, Addington, uh, Gonzalez. <clears throat> right, right. And the um, and and Eric Holder, it looks like he wants to keep it in house in the Department of Justice, so he can can uh, can keep a close eye on it and make sure it doesn't go too far. But what we really need is a special outside prosecutor, an outside counsel, to look with a clear eye at the evidence and decide who to prosecute and for what. After Watergate, we had the uh, Ethics in Government Act, which Jimmy Carter signed. It was a Republican Congress who passed it, and Jimmy Carter signed it um, to bring highest government officials to justice for the commission of crimes. And Ken Starr was appointed a special prosecutor, and he went after Clinton, and of course we know uh, that he it resulted in Clinton's impeachment, although not removal from office. And uh, and many in Congress uh, didn't you know didn't have much taste for the independent counsel statute after that. They thought it was a witch hunt, so they let the uh, the law expire by its own terms. And then the power to appoint a special prosecutor reverted back to the attorney general. But under the attorney general's regulations, if there is uh, if there is reason to believe somebody's committed a crime, and there certainly is in this case, and if it's in the public interest to bring these people to justice, and it certainly is, and if there would be a a conflict of interest if the attorney general handled it uh, himself, which there is here, because many of the people in the attorney general's office uh, may be implicated in this, then they need to, the attorney general needs to appoint a special outside prosecutor, and that's what should happen. Because if we don't take care of business and prosecute these war criminals, and again, torture and cruel treatment are war crimes, um, then other countries are going to do it for us. And in fact, there are now charges, or at least an investigation, pending in Spain against six of Bush's legal mercenaries. Yes. And I think we need to go back to understand how any kind of confession that you get from torture is really not reliable. I think, you know, when when I hear people talk about this or I hear it on the radio and talk radio, people will say, well, they're, they're terrorists. Who cares? Look what they do to us. Talk about that because I think the, the whole issue of when you're waterboarding, which, you know, I really didn't know what it was until I was reading a book on, on terrorism and how it came really from the Middle Ages that they pour water down your throat until you just about drown. I didn't really even understand what that was. But I think people think that it's okay because they're terrorists. And what do you what do you say to that? Well, first of all, it's illegal, and and that's very important. Second of all, it doesn't work. Experts will almost unanimously tell you that when you torture someone, he'll he'll tell you anything you want to hear to get the torture to stop. Exactly. And you don't know if that's reliable information or not. Um, and if we, uh, if if our reputation continues as as a country of torturers, then what's going to prevent other countries from when they capture U.S. personnel torturing them and saying, "Hey, what's wrong with it? The U.S. does it." Uh, it's a slippery slope, and uh, so it's illegal. It doesn't work, and uh, it also is is wrong. Now, Alberto Mora, who was general counsel of the Navy, said that flagship ranking officers in the military had told him that the two biggest recruiting devices for people who were putting our troops in Iraq in danger were Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. So for many, many reasons, it's illegal, it doesn't work, and it's counterproductive. And and I just want to say one more thing, Mari, and that is that um, my fourth book is coming out next year, and it's going to be published by NYU Press and uh, it's an anthology of, uh, it's about torture, United States of Torture, America's Past and Present Policy of Interrogation and Abuse. And it's going to consist of 15 chapters by people from many different disciplines, a psychologist, a, a um, philosopher, sociologist, political scientist, historian, journalist, theologian, lawyers, talking about different aspects of torture. So people should look out for that early fall of next year. Right. And I, I think that's the the sad part about all of this is that it's the the government, our own government is really trying to suppress all this and not have it come out. What does the world think of us as a democracy if we do suppress it? Well, I think there, 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 it's going to engender even more hatred against the United States. 
um, when and, and and of course most of this this uh, cruel treatment and killing of people in illegal wars is uh, is done against people of color, and uh, and and I suspect that if they were white, we would not be treating them so cruelly. And and I hate to say that, but I think there is a lot of racism involved here. Um, and so, so certainly it's going to be counterproductive and it's not going to make us any safer. Um, and, uh, there are some policies that Obama is, uh, is, uh, continuing from the Bush administration that are very, very alarming. One is, uh, the stepping up the war in Afghanistan, the bombing, illegal bombing of, uh, people in Pakistan. Many civilians are being killed by these unmanned CIA drones, uh, now we we learn that Blackwater is involved in that. No surprise there. Talking about uh, institutionalizing indefinite detention, uh, locking up people without any charges forever. Uh, this violates another treaty we've ratified, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, the Bush administration is denying habeas corpus rights to detainees uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, exactly what the Supreme Court in Boumediene said that that uh, that Guantanamo detainees uh, had to have the right to habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is it's called the Great Writ. It's in our Constitution, and uh, and it allows people to go before a neutral judge and say, "Look, I'm being held unlawfully. I'm innocent. Let me go." And uh, and yet uh, Obama is denying people in Afghanistan the right to habeas corpus, even people who are on on U.S. territory or, or uh, under U.S. jurisdiction in in these prisons. Um, he is maintaining the same state secrets privilege that Bush did um, to prevent the litigation of Bush's illegal uh, spying program, terrorist surveillance program, and also to prevent litigation of, uh, for example, the case of Binyan Mohammed and others who were victims of extraordinary rendition, which also violates the Convention Against Torture. It's when the United States government sends people to other countries where they've perfected the art of torture, such as Egypt or Syria or Jordan or Morocco. Um, and so there's some very alarming things that Obama is doing, and I think that although his intentions are probably very good, um, he is has come under the influence of the intelligence community, the military brass, and uh, and and the corporations who are telling him, and he 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 is not an Eisenhower or an FDR who can stand up to them, uh, and they're telling him, look, you have to do this to keep us safe, and he is just capitulating. Uh, right down the line uh, to many, many of these illegal and, uh, and I think, very dangerous policies from the Bush administration. Mm. You know, I understand that you've been active in trying to recover compensation for the Vietnamese victims of Agent Orange. That's kind of switching gears a little bit, but you've done so many wonderful things for the military. Why don't you describe to us about that and, and how that does relate to what's going on now? Well, first of all, um, I think a lot of people don't know that the war in Vietnam continues for many Vietnamese and for many Vietnamese Americans and for many U.S. veterans of the Vietnam War. Um, from 1961 to 1971, the U.S. military sprayed Vietnam with Agent Orange. Um, and Agent Orange was a defoliant uh, to, to uh, destroy the trees in the forest so they could find the Viet Cong. But it contained large quantities of dioxin. And dioxin is one of the most dangerous chemicals known to man. It's been recognized by the World Health Organization as, can as cancer-causing and by the American Academy of Medicine as a, uh, causing birth defects. Um, and they, they didn't have to have such high levels of dioxin in Agent Orange. Um, the chemical companies, Dow and Monsanto, and the U.S. government all knew that when Agent Orange was produced rapidly at high temperatures, it would contain large quantities of dioxin. And, uh, and they also knew that it was dangerous because the U.S. government had commissioned the Bionetics 
study in 1963, which showed that even low levels of dioxin produce significant deformities in unborn offspring of laboratory animals, but they suppressed that study and continued to spray Agent Orange, and it wasn't until the study was leaked that the spraying was discontinued. And uh, between 2.5 and 4.8 million people were exposed to Agent Orange. About 12% of the land of Vietnam was sprayed. The people who were exposed, Vietnamese and also U.S. soldiers, have suffered cancer, liver damage, heart disease, defects to their reproductive capacity. But the children and grandchildren of the people who were exposed have severe physical deformities. Uh, some are born without brain cavities, without mm. limbs. Um, it, it, we, we, um, I was a judge on a tribunal in Paris in May. I was one of seven judges from three continents that heard testimony for two days uh, in the International uh, Commission of Conscience for the Vietnamese Victims of Agent Orange. And uh, one man, Mai Jiang Vu, testified. He was a member of the Army of South Vietnam. He carried barrels of the chemicals on his back, and his, his two sons could not walk or function normally. Their limbs gradually curled up and they could only crawl, and they died at the ages of 23 and 25. These are typical stories. One other, which is is a horrible story, a French-Vietnamese who worked as a journalist, her daughter uh, weighed 6.6 pounds at the age of three months and also at the age of 17 months when she died. Um, And before she died, her skin began shredding. She couldn't bear to have skin contact or special uh, simple demonstrations of love. And Ms. Toh described a woman who gave birth to a ball with no human form. I mean, this is just horrible. Many of our uh, vets and Vietnamese Americans are suffering as well. Um, And although Richard Nixon promised in 1973 $3.25 billion in reconstruction aid to Vietnam without any preconditions, that aid aid was never granted. One of the the expert witnesses, Dr. Jean Stellman, testified. She wrote the seminal article about Agent Orange in the journal Nature, and she testified this is the largest unstudied environmental disaster in the world, Mm. except for natural disasters. Um, They went through the court system, and for various reasons, which I think were political, um, they were thrown out of court, and now we are trying to get the legislature to pass legislation compensating the Vietnamese victims and also giving more compensation to the U.S. veterans and Vietnamese Americans for this this real travesty. And this is important now, I just want to say, because we're still doing it. We are using depleted uranium in Iraq, in Afghanistan. We used it in Kosovo. Um, We're using white phosphorus gas and cluster bombs and... uh, these are poison weapons. They're chemical weapons. They violate uh, the, our, our um, humanitarian law, and they are also going to stick around, especially the depleted uranium in the environment for millions of years. So we need to, uh, to compensate the Vietnamese for what we did there, and we need to stop doing what we're continuing to do in other countries, which is just destroy the environment and create havoc for the people there long after these wars, uh, whenever they might end, are over. Marjorie, are there any documentaries showing this, some of these uh, people that you've talked about? Any, yes, there, are? there is a documentary by a woman, uh, a Japanese woman, um, who was married to a, um, she was married to a U.S. vet, and she, um, she, her husband died unexpectedly. He got sick, and two weeks later he died of, oh. of cancer. And she had no idea what was happening, and then she realized it had to do with his exposure to Agent Orange. And so she um, made a documentary, which is very compelling, which, inter- which shows a lot of, of uh, footage of some of these people. They, they live in, some of them live in, the victims live in friendship villages, mm. um, which were started in Vietnam and uh, there are about 11 of them, and, and they need, really need over 100 of them to, to take care of the victims. But um, if you do a search uh, on the Internet, Agent Orange film, you'll come up with this. She's Japanese, and, um, and it's really quite a compelling film. You know, Marjorie, you have done so many wonderful things fighting the, the good fight uh, for justice, truth, justice in the American way, so, so to speak. So we can find out more about you and so much more of what you've done. Why don't you give us your website again, because we're running out of time. It's um, MarjorieCohn.com, M-A-R-J-O-R-I-E-C-O-H-N. 
com. And if you go to the top of the website on the right, it says there's a little place you can click. It says useful research. And if you click there, you'll find about 60 different categories of all different topic areas. And if you click on there, you'll find all my articles on that topic. And so it is useful research that people can use. And we'll tell people to, of course, look at Rules of Disengagement and your other books. You're terrific. We'll have you back again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mari. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Marjorie Cohn, who is a law professor right in San Diego at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She's an author. She's a journalist. She's a commentator for the media, and she is wonderful. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You can see our upcoming guests. You can read their bios, see their pictures. Also, you can see our previous guests and their archived interviews. You can download podcasts. And please write us emails about what you want to know about in the information age. Thank you very much for joining us on Privacy Piracy. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 